Okay, the book of Judges. <laughs> yes. Judges is, it's been said to be one of the least studied books of the Old Testament. Now, that it may be competing for perhaps some of the minor prophets for that title, uh, but certainly as far as the narrative passages go, I imagine that it is one of the lesser studies book of the Old Testament. It doesn't see a lot of action on Sunday mornings. Uh, there's a lot of exciting stories in the book of Judges, right? Some that we can think of that, that come to mind that's just like, wow, you know, there's, there's some pretty, pretty neat things that are going on there. And then there's some other stories in the book of Judges that are shocking, genuinely shocking to us as we consider the content there. So on the one hand, it's easy to understand why this book has been perhaps a little bit neglected from the Old Testament scriptures. There are some strange stories. There are some disturbing stories. And judges, by all accounts, can be, I think, rightly considered to be a bit of a depressing book. As you track through the stories and as you move towards the end, you get to the end and you're like, what is going on in the nation of Israel? What is happening? How have things come to this place? And of course, we're familiar with how the book ends with the ominous words, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We've all seen the graphics that people put on screen sometimes of the cycle of the judges, right? About how they are, they are uh, the, the people of Israel, they fall into sin. God brings about judgments. Uh, they repent. God delivers. There's a time of rest. And then later on, they fall into sin, and the cycle perpetuates itself over and over again throughout the book. There are individual characters and stories from the books that, that do tend to get emphasized, right? Everybody knows the story about Gideon, right? Everyone knows about Samson. Like, these are well-known stories from the book, but apart from those, it's easy to see why this book is not necessarily go-to material, when we grapple with Old Testament scriptures. But on the other hand, when we look into the book and we see the patterns at play, when we look into see, and then we look at the book of Judges, and then we look out even into our culture today, we can almost, I can't help but take a look at things going on and conclude that we need the book of Judges today. We need the book of Judges today. In a day and age when the church is, uh, when the church desperately desired it to be liked by the world, when secular ideologies are creeping into the church and we see prominent individuals openly declaring their apostasy and their departure from the faith, the book of Judges becomes a solemn warning to us. You know, when I was a child, I recall a sermon that my pastor preached. And sometimes, you know, you hear sermons and, you know, the next day you don't even remember it. Or even the next, the, even the afternoon, you're trying to think, wow, what did the preacher preach about today? And you can't always remember. I know that that happens. It happens. Of course, that's, that's, just, that's just the nature of life. But every once in a while, there's a sermon that you hear that just, it, it impacts you in a different way, and you remember it for years to come. And there was one sermon in particular that I remember my pastor preaching that has stuck with me and continues. I, I continue to think about this sermon from time to time. The title of the sermon was The Three Chairs. 
It was a sermon about this observation that so often when there is a first-generation Christian, they are sold out for the Lord. They're excited. They, have, they know where they've come from in their life. They know the brokenness that existed in their own life, and they know what Christ did for them, that Christ did a marvelous work within them and, re- and restored them into a place of right relationship with God and just absolutely changed their life. They are, they're completely sold out for the Lord. But then, for whatever reason, there's a variety of reasons that could happen. The next generation comes along, and they're raised in, a, in that Christian household. They're raised going to church. But for whatever reason, that, that same passion is not communicated. That same zeal doesn't seem to get passed to the next generation. So that second chair is an individual that, yeah, they, they've made a profession of faith, and, and they come to church, and, and they do things, but... But they don't just seem to have that same relationship that maybe their, their parents had. And, and maybe they, they dabble in some other things that, that might raise some eyebrows. Or they get involved with stuff that they perhaps should forsake. And so there are those second chair Christians. And then there's the third chair, that the next generation on, where we begin to see that's where individuals walk away from the faith. Perhaps they're raised going to church, but they don't stick with it. They end up departing the faith. They don't stay in church, and they don't follow after the Lord at all, and they walk away. They have the first chair, the second chair, and the third chair. And I recall this sermon had a profound impact upon me as the challenge from the sermon was, which chair are you sitting in? Are you a first chair Christian, a second chair, or a a third chair Christian. And I knew that in that moment, I not only desired to be a first chair believer, but I desired that, this, that my children would also be first chair believers, that we would not see this, this cycle go on. And, and the pastor, as he was preaching, he could give examples of where he has observed this pattern. He pulled from Scripture where there was patterns of this in Scripture. He also observed individuals in his life, and I can say now, now, now that I have grown and have lived life of my own, that I have also observed this same pattern in the lives of others that were close to me as well, where there was this degradation that occurred through the generations. And I knew that that is a cycle that I did not want in my family, that I did not want to see this degradation occur across the generations. I wanted that cycle to be broken When we come to the book of Judges, I think we see that dynamic at play. At first, there's a generation that sees the work of the Lord, and they're excited about what God has done, and they, they follow after the Lord, but they fail to pass that along to their children, who fail to pass that along to their children. And eventually, we have a group of Israelites who look just like the Canaanites in the world around them. I do want to emphasize, though, that even though this book can be depressing in some ways, where we see this cycle and it just, it's just this downward spiral towards the end, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, there is good news, right? The cycle can be broken, right? This is not a hopeless cycle that has to perpetuate itself for all eternity. It, it doesn't have to be this way. There is a way to break the cycle, This doesn't have to be stuck in this pattern. 
And so in that way, the book of Judges can be incredibly encouraging for us as we see that even though as we wrestle with the text, as we wrestle with these stories and what is going on, that God has provided the Messiah who does break the cycle. We sing that song, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. Well, we see that is true in Jesus Christ who breaks the cycle of the book of Judges. I've titled this series, In Need of a King, because in many ways, that's what the Israelites are looking for. They're looking for a king. They need a leader. And God gave them some earthly rulers, but they still walked in rebellion. What they needed was a king. And I'm not talking about Saul. I'm not talking about David. They needed a divine king. Well, here's how we're going to approach our introduction to this book. I just, for today, I just want us to sketch a little bit of the background, maybe a lot of bit of the background, of the lead up to how we come to this moment in the book of Judges, right? We're we're really picking up Judges in the middle of a story, right? This is the story of the history of the nation of Israel. We're picking up kind of midstream here. So we want to know, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? And so we're going to be spending the majority of our time today wrestling with that and just kind of giving us an overview. When we go back, we're going to go back to the calling of Abraham. That is roughly the year 2100 BC, right? That is about as far back before Christ as we are today after Christ, okay? And we're going to trace the history of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, and see how they come up to this moment in the book of Judges, how they arrive here And then in future weeks, we'll begin working through the actual text of the book of Judges itself. So today is a little bit less of a sermon and more of a historical overview and a a survey of the Old Testament books leading up to this point of the book of Judges. So we are really dealing with the backstory. How did we get here? This is the, the origin story, so to speak, of as we come into the book of Judges. So let's go back right now to the book of Genesis. And we are going to be turning some pages here today, so I just warn you of that ahead of time. I'm going to have most of the text up on the screen, so uh, feel free to either jot down passages or or look them up or uh, just read them off the screen, however you choose to do that. But we are going to be in Genesis chapter 12, where we find the calling of Abraham. You know, I wrestled with a little bit about how far back I really ought to go, and really this just seemed like the, the, the right place. This really seemed like the right place to start because the book of Judges really tells a story of the covenant faithfulness of our God. The covenant faithfulness of our God, and that goes back to the covenant that He made with Abraham. So we're going back Abraham, to the, uh, Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is really where the story begins. God comes to Abraham and he says to him, this is what I'm going to do for you. It's not because Abraham was anybody special. Right? It's not because Abraham was, this, was just this super righteous, God-fearing man. In fact, we really don't know much about the history. Of, in fact, there's, there is some evidence to think that you know, he was probably a pagan man, just like all the other pagan people who lived around him. And yet God calls out Abraham and he says to him, this is what I will do for you. And Abraham acted in faith. He acted in faith in the promise of God. Later in chapter 15, God expands upon this promise. This is chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward. It shall be very great. And then skipping down to verses 5 and 6, he says this. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. The number of the star, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in the promise of God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This really is the most fundamental aspect and backdrop to the whole story of the Bible, right? When we start looking at the story of the whole Bible, the whole overarching theme, this is God's covenant with Abraham is, is fundamental to this because it is through the descendants of Abraham that God is going to bring the Messiah into the world, right? It is through Abraham's descendants that all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and they are blessed through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ, so God has, has put things in motion. He has set the stage now for the development of this nation through whom the Messiah would one day come. And this is a promise that God reiterates to each successive generation after Abraham. We see in Genesis chapter 26 that Abraham's son Isaac gets a reaffirmation of this same promise. The Lord, let's see, this is Genesis chapter 26, verses 2 through 5. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and it will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." reiteration of the same promise. We see the same kinds of, of promises that God gave to Abraham. That is given to Isaac as well. And then he gives it also to Jacob. Genesis 28, verses 13 and following. 
And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, this is, by the context of this, this is when Jacob is sleeping, is, uh, he's fled from his brother Esau, he's fallen asleep, and there's the, there's the stairway to heaven, the angels ascending and descending, and this is what Jacob sees in the dream. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So we see again this reiteration of the same promise. One of the key things when we are examining the covenants of God is to consider when God makes a covenant with an individual or with a people group, is it an unconditional covenant or is it a conditional covenant? And God has spoken here that this is an unconditional covenant. This wasn't contingent upon anything that Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob did. This is something that God said, this is what I am going to do. This is an unconditional covenant that cannot be broken. I am going to fulfill this. This will be done. And I find it interesting that God speaks this to Abraham, God speaks this to Isaac, but when it comes to Jacob, Jacob is one of those guys that's got to be reminded a few times. And sometimes I'm like that, and I'm sure perhaps you might be able to emphasize, empathize with that as well. And we don't always trust God the first time. We have to be reminded of certain truths multiple times. We have to be told multiple times, and such is the case with Jacob. We find in Genesis 35 that God speaks to Jacob again. God appeared to Jacob again and when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, of course, we know that this doesn't mean it was all sunshine and roses for Jacob and his family, right? There, there was tremendously difficult times that came along the way. Jacob's children, they acted wickedly out of jealousy. They sold their brother Joseph into Egypt. But God sovereignly protected Joseph and blessed him and rose him, raised him up in order to provide for others. We know the story of how uh, he rose to prominence in Potiphar's house before he was falsely accused of sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife. He was thrown into prison. But God was even in the midst of that because in God's providence, it was through that situation that he came into contact with Pharaoh's butler and Pharaoh's baker, who then put him in touch with Pharaoh when Pharaoh had a dream. And Joseph would interpret that dream and provide wisdom for how to deal with the years of famine that were to come. And so Pharaoh installs Joseph as second in command over all Egypt, and it is through these means that God provided for the people. 
God had preserved and fulfills His promise to Abraham through the miraculous work of Joseph. So we know that 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 famine did arise, and because of God's blessing on Joseph, the only place in the region that you could get food was the land of Egypt, and it's through God's providence that God has preserved Joseph, that through him he might preserve the lives of many. In fact, that is what Joseph himself, his own testimony, says, yes, my brothers meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, to preserve the lives of many. We find that in Genesis chapter 50. And that includes Jacob and his family. When Jacob learned that Joseph was alive and in Egypt, he decided, okay, yep, it's time. We've got to pack our whole family up. We're headed south. We are going to go to Egypt, and we're going to go live there. It seemed that there was a little bit of trepidation in his mind because God appears and speaks to Jacob once again. And we find this in Genesis chapter 46 verses four, uh, 2 through 4, and God spoke to Israel. Again, now, God has changed Jacob's name to Israel. So, this is God speaking to Jacob. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I don't know if you've noticed a a pattern a little bit in what we've gone through as we've looked and seen the, the promise to Abraham, the promise to Isaac, the promise to Jacob, and then the promise reiterated to Jacob, and then the promise reiterated to Jacob again. We have this at each major stage of life, at each major juncture, when every time Jacob is either going to have to, he has to make a move or, or, or something significant happens in his life, God appears to him again and reaffirms, okay, yes, this massive seismic event is occurring in your life. But don't be afraid. This is the promise that I have made. This is what I will do. And even though these circumstances are changing within your life, that doesn't change my promise. That doesn't change what I have affirmed that I will do. God is affirming His covenant. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Well, the story continues in the land of Egypt. Time goes by. Joseph dies. The Israelites, they flourish in the land of Egypt. And They flourish a little bit too much for the uh, comfort of King Pharaoh there in Egypt. Uh, uh, Hundreds of years go by. A Pharaoh shows up who has no remembrance of Joseph, has no idea what the Israelites did for the Egyptians. All he knows is that these these, uh, Israelites, they are growing so greatly in number that he feels threatened by their presence. He's worried that they are going to take over Egypt and he's going to lose his kingdom. So his solution is I'm going to kill a bunch of Hebrew babies. I'm going to sacrifice many of them in order to prevent them from taking over Egypt. Well, in God's providence, God preserved the life of of Moses. And we know a little bit of that story, how he was placed in the basket and how God preserved him in that way. And eventually Moses fled from the land of Egypt when he figured out that he, he grew up in uh, Pharaoh's household. He figured out, okay, he's an Israelite and he's seeking to provide for and help his brothers. And 
So he kills an Egyptian man. Now he has to flee and run away. So he flees to the land of Midian. And it is there that God speaks to Moses. And God speaks to him. This is Exodus now. Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. God says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is 400 years after the Israelites coming to the land of Egypt. Seventy individuals that traveled in a caravan from the land of Canaan, where, where Jacob was living, down to the land of Egypt. 400 years go by. Somewhere within that 400 years, the Israelites are enslaved and put into forced labor. And now here they are groaning out to the Lord. And it says that earlier in the same chapter, or at the end of chapter 2, it says that God saw the people and God knew. He remembered the covenant that He had made. And there's that connecting point. God's command to Moses to speak to the people was to say that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that God had promised. God had promised to these different individuals that this would be a reality, that He would give them to this land. And now God is saying, I'm fulfilling my promise. I'm pulling you out of Egypt. I'm going to deliver you from the hand of your oppressors. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And so we have the story of how God brought them out of Egypt. The ten plagues, the crossing the Red Sea, the actions in the wilderness. But we also know that even as God brought them out of Egypt, that the people, of course, were always so delighted and always followed after exactly what God told them to do, right? Yeah, (laughs) not so much. Not so much. We find people that were, they grumbled at their new situation They complained about the food that God was miraculously providing for their lives. They were disobedient. They acted in direct violation of His commands that He gave them on the mountain. Even as God brought them out of Egypt, they did not act in gratitude, but complained. You know, oftentimes we take a look at the story and we see that the the actions of the Israelites, and we just scratch our heads and be like, what are you guys doing? Like, you've seen God at work, you've seen the miracles, and then there you are doing all your stuff. And, and yet, if we are willing to speak honestly even about our own lives, I think we're probably more like the Israelites than we'd like to admit. God brings us through some, something, and we, we thank Him, we praise Him for what He's done for us, and then we find something else to complain about, and, and we get all worked up about other situations. Well, Moses speaks with the people. God, God speaks with Moses and commands him to speak with the people yet again. And we see, again, this constant affirmation of the covenants that God has made. Here we are in Exodus chapter 19, and this is leading up to the giving of the law. 
Right, this is leading up to uh, this, the, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. This is Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So now there's, God is beginning to, he, God has established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we call this the Abrahamic covenant. Now as there is a whole host of people, this is hundreds of years after the life of Abraham. This is approximately the year 1400 B.C. Now we have this this exodus, this departure from the land, and we have God establishing another covenant. Now it is with a whole nation of people. Now we have the Mosaic covenant that is beginning to be established with the people. And the people respond favorably. Exodus 19 verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He has given us this command, yes, we will obey. You've done all these great things for us. And of course, the Ten Commandments is what follows. And God gives that on the basis. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And so we have the giving of the law that we find in the rest of the book of Exodus. But we also know, sadly, again, The people do not always do what they've claimed to do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, except when we don't. And sadly, that happens quite frequently. They are a stubborn and stiff-necked people, as the Lord calls them. They have a propensity to go their own way. And this is no more exemplified than when they refuse to enter into the land because God brings them right up to the brink, right? It's right there. They're, they're to, to go in, and they send in the 12, the 12 spies, right? Of course, we had this song growing up. I don't know if you guys ever sang the song, uh, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and 2 were good. You know that song? All right, yeah. We sang that song all the time. That's right, that, that situation where there was the, some saw the, the goodness of the land. They brought back the, the fruit of the land. Look at these grapes. It's a, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, just like God promised. But then the others were afraid. They saw the giants of the land. They saw the, the people. They're strong, and they've got their, their strongholds, their fortified cities. And said, oh, we're too weak. We can't go up against them. Forgetting that God literally parted a sea to bring the people to this point. And yet they're afraid of some individuals living in the land. And so they refused to go in. They refused to enter in. And so as a result, God promised them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, those years go by, and finally it is the time for them to enter the land. They are reminded of the law that their parents had agreed to follow, because now that generation has passed away. The children of that uh, rebellious generation have raised up. And now the, there is a second giving of the law, a reminder of the law that is given to the people so that they might be reminded as they enter in that this is the things that they are to obey, and that is the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally means the second law. It is the second giving of the law. 
And so the, Moses calls the people throughout. If you read the first several chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, it's a recounting of the history of all the, the marvelous things that God had done. Think of how God had defeated this king before you. When, when these people came up against you, God protected you. God has done these mighty things. Now keep His law. Obey what He has commanded you to do. And so He charges them. He challenges them. He pleads with them to heed the voice of the Lord. And it is at this point that people enter into the land of Canaan. And this is where Moses dies. He is buried up on the mountain. And Joshua assumes commands. And now when we come into that book of Joshua, it's the, again, it begins with the death of Moses. And we see Joshua taking charge and he calls out to the people after Moses is dead. Okay, now we've got a new leader in place. Are the people going to follow after Joshua? And so Joshua challenges the people before they begin their first conquest, before they step forward, he challenges them. Joshua chapter 1, verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And after giving some other instructions, the people reply, They answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with us as he was with Moses. You know, it seems as though maybe they've learned something here. It's okay, they've gone through all this journey in the wilderness, they've seen God provide, and now they're coming into the land, and they know the importance that that God's got to be with us. We know that this must be true. We need God with us. And and so we see that as they go and they they begin to conquer the land, they they have success at Jericho, and we see them come into this other, but then we see individuals who disobey, and that brings trouble into the camp. And so when they go up against the city of Ai, then they're defeated, and and then they realize, they come to embrace reality that it, this is all of us as a nation, as a whole. We must all observe the commands of the Lord. And He will go before us. And He will conquer. But that is the key, is the Lord must be with them. To me, that calls to mind what the psalmist has said, unless the Lord builds the house, he who builds it labors in vain. That's true for the nation of Israel. They need the Lord to go before them. They need Him to be at work. And so as the book of Joshua unfolds, we see the people moving in and capturing the land, having tremendous victory, having victory over people that are significantly stronger and more uh, militarily advanced than the Israelites. And yet they're having success. They're having victory. And God is establishing them in the land So that's the first half of the book of Joshua. The second half is the division of the land. Okay, this tribe gets this parcel of land, this tribe gets that. And and so is the dividing up of all the land. As we come to the end of the book of Joshua, we find Joshua issuing a similar charge to the people that Moses did. And so we find in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, as Joshua knows that his days are coming to an end and he desires the people to be walking with the Lord, we find these words, Joshua 24. 
Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, and what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. So again, Joshua is reminding the people, this is all based on the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is where it started. God made that promise. And to Isaac, and to Jacob, and Jacob went down to Egypt. But now I've made you a nation. Now I've brought you out. And so now, let's skip down with me to verse 14. This, after recounting what God has done, Joshua then gives his charge. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Of course, those, those are somewhat famous words from Joshua saying, choose this day who you're going to serve. Make up your mind now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered favorably. The people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Like, why would we do that? For it is the Lord who has brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved in us all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Now, Joshua kind of tests the people now. He's just like, okay, I know you, I hear you saying this, but do you really mean it? Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after, you have done no, after, after having done you good. But the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. 
And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree, under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. I went too far too fast, I think. Nope, that's right. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words that the Lord has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And it is after this that Joshua died. And Judges picks up with his death. Judges 1 verse 1, after the death of Joshua, we have the book of Judges. So, how did we get here? By all accounts, humanly speaking, the nation of Israel should not exist in this point in history. Humanly speaking. Abraham was not a special person, but God chose to bless him. Many points through the history we find the failings of Jacob. We find the failings of the people of Israel. We find the rebellion. We find even in the wilderness as they're complaining against the Lord that God just, He wants to just consume them. And Moses pleads with the Lord to have mercy in order to fulfill the covenant and the promise that he made. God had to remind Jacob at several junctures to remove false idols from his family. And even here now, Joshua has had to remind the people, those false gods that are among you, put them away. They shouldn't be among you. Why are you collecting these things? It's a continual battle that goes on. The Israelites complained often and deliberately disobeyed the command of the Lord. And yet, God has made a promise to Abraham. God has reaffirmed that promise to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to the people through Joshua. God has reaffirmed this every step along the way. And it was to this promise that Joshua bases his exhortation to the people. By every metric, this is not like a rock star group of people. This is not like the, the model group of people just like, look at that nation. They, that's who we want to be like. Like, that's not this people. And yet God has, in His graciousness to them, He didn't choose them because of their greatness. He didn't choose them because they were the holiest. He didn't choose them because there was something special about them. But rather, God chose them based upon His sovereign choice to bring about the Savior of the world through this people. And it is His faithfulness, despite the faithlessness of the people, it is His faithfulness that has brought them to this point where they have gone through the land, they have conquered the land, they have done all the things, they have set up their cities, they have settled in the land and established themselves affirming that they will serve the Lord. It is God's faithfulness that has brought them to this moment. Now what will they do? What will they do? Will they live as they are charged and command to live? Will they be obedient to the Lord? 
Will they be a first chair Israelite? Or will they drift into the second and third and chairs and beyond? Well, that is what we shall see as we go through the book of Judges in coming weeks. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know some of the answers to those questions. But our task is, as we study this book, we do want to learn what this book has to say. We want to learn how it applies to our lives. And that is the task that we will give ourselves to accomplishing beginning next week. But I wanted us to trace that history to see that it is, it is the covenant faithfulness of God that has brought us here. And it is the covenant faithfulness of God that we are going to continue to see when the people continue to rebel and rebel and rebel, cycle after cycle after cycle. It is God's faithfulness to His covenant that sustains them. And so we praise Him and we thank Him because He is a covenant-keeping God. Thank You, Lord, for Your your word, how you have given us this history of the nation of Israel, how you have brought about these people that, Lord, you have chosen them for your purpose, you've established them, and it is through this nation that you brought about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He came into the world. He is that king that the people desperately needed. I pray, Lord, that you would guide our discussion as we continue to move through this book in the weeks ahead, as we see the richness of your word, many examples of what to do, what not to do, many opportunities to drive us unto our Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you that we can know that you are a covenant-keeping God, that your promises are sure, that when you say you will give eternal life to those who trust in you, that we can count on that and we can know that that is true because we have seen how you have kept your faithful promises in the past as we have seen through the people of Israel. We thank you, we praise you for these things, for you are a holy God. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.